Hello, and welcome to Silk Road Rising's In Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to the lively exchange of ideas and experiences. Silk Road Rising is a community-centered, art-making, and art-service organization rooted in Asian, Middle Eastern, and Muslim experiences. Through live theater, digital media, and arts education, we challenge disinformation, cultivate new narratives, and promote a culture of continuous learning. I'm your host, Jamil Corey, co-founder and co-executive artistic director of Silk Road Rising. On this episode of In Dialogue, I'm continuing the conversation with my dear friend, colleague, and collaborator, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, Associate Professor of Theater Arts at the University of Oregon. This is the fourth of nine conversations I'm having with Malik, exploring the Arab-American and Middle Eastern American theater movements. In our previous episode, we examined the period from the 1967 Six-Day Arab-Israeli War to the attacks of September 11, 2001. And in this episode, we're examining the period from 9-11 to the present. This conversation was recorded on August 22, 2019. Welcome, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. Obviously, on that tragic day, our lives, our world changed in very profound and disturbing ways. Uh, if, if you could talk to us about that, that dramatic shift, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the carpet being pulled out from underneath uh, several collectives. It was a terrible time for us as a country, but it was also, I think, uh, a duly terrible time for those of us who uh, identify as Middle Eastern American because here was a group of really a, a, an army of sorts that was really um, doing this kind of uh, action and yet uh, the entire Middle Eastern community was tarred by the brush of that particular group's horrific uh, actions that day. And so Middle Eastern Americans I think really found themselves othered uh, they were placed on the outside of the American experience. They were forced to be treated as uh, suspicious persons. They were being interrogated. They were being um, detained. Some of them were being deported. Um, and then we had, of course, the rise of uh, governmental actions that led to even more uh, um, interrogations, the setting up of things like the, the camp at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and then we heard about uh, renditions going on around the world. So the and, sense of and fear- And the lead up to the, the Iraq war. Absolutely. The, the sense of fear and paranoia was just astonishing and yet Middle Eastern Americans were trying to mourn with their fellow Americans and weren't being allowed to because they were being treated as others. And this conflation of, of Arabness and Middle Easternness and Muslimness and, and South Asianness and, and the fact that everyone almost overnight became somehow Muslim exactly. uh, and, and we were all targeted in, in different ways uh, and, and, and to the point you just raised, not allowed to grieve with our fellow Americans or to participate in any sort of catharsis or healing uh, because we were defending ourselves and we were trying to you know, deflect a certain kind of attention or criticism or scrutiny. Uh, and, uh, and of course artists need to respond Absolutely. and artists are called upon 
to somehow make sense of the madness and chaos uh, around us. You know, I think out of the ashes of the Arabophobia, Islamophobia, and other phobias uh, that, that arose uh, from the Reagan period onward to 9-11, we saw an amazing rise of this phoenix of Middle Eastern American theater. Um, for instance, Darvag Group out of Berkeley, the Iranian-American company. Um, you had Golden Thread Productions out of San Francisco, uh, started in 1996. You had Nibras, uh, which was started in 2002, a collective of Arab-American artists in New York City. Uh, the Mosaic Theater Company by, uh, of Ari Roth's company in uh, Washington, uh, D.C., uh, the Israeli Stage in Boston, the New Arab-American Theater Works in uh, in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Pangea, Cornerstone, Mixed Blood Theater, so many amazing companies rising up, including Silk Road Rising. These companies redefined Middle Eastern American lives on stage. This was an extraordinary feat because prior to that, everyone else defined Middle Eastern lives on film and theater. And in the previous episodes, we talked about the misrepresentations, the, the way that Arabs and Muslims were often uh, regarded as terrorists and, and suicide bombers. Finally, companies like yours and these other companies I've listed, they finally took matters into their own hands and said, no, we are going to actually change the discourse. And again, not in the sense of trying to make every Middle Easterner as some sort of angel on stage, but instead giving three-dimensional, multi-dimensional, complex um, representations in a way that had not been seen prior. And I just think that that is one of the great contributions Silk Road has, has given uh, to the American theater landscape. Neither angels nor demons, but rather human beings. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think there had been such a propensity to either want to be portrayed as angels right. or to be portrayed as demons by other people. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, claiming that authorial voice, as I, as I, I, I referenced earlier, Malik and I took our respective backgrounds, our, our, our heritage, uh, and we placed it in a context that put, that put us in conversation uh, with many other cultures and communities that are, were also uh, suffering from a lack of representation or misrepresentation or chronic bad representation. Uh, and, and we wanted to, you know, bring that back home. Uh, and, you know, playwrights, I love playwrights. Uh, <laughs> and Being one yourself. Some of my favorite people are <laughs> sure. playwrights. Uh, are, you know, maybe by definition full of a certain amount of angst. Uh, and the relationship to culture and heritage and family and upbringing and, you know, religious tradition and so forth uh, is, is probably complicated. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people struggle a lot with questions of identity and of struggle with, you know, what does it mean to be uh, American? What does it mean to uh, be a hyphenated American? Sure. Uh, so, you know, that would live on the stage and it would allow for our communities to experience that kind of catharsis that had been so often denied to us or so often just not available to us. And, and in prior generations, the theater was native language theater. So, uh, you know, the Yiddish theater is an example of that. Uh, the different Arabic th speaking theaters that rose up, the Iranian Farsi uh, theaters. but 
what happened with these companies specifically is you started to have second generation, third generation uh, Middle Eastern Americans speaking in English, you know, using that authorial voice, and many of them were professionally trained, as something that was not always the case in, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century. So what you did was you had this great um, connection between second, third generation uh, Americans raised in this country with these diverse backgrounds, writing in English for their audiences and, and, and non-Middle Eastern audiences. And I think that that's where the great success lay for companies like Silk Road Rising was that ability to finally bring it all together in a really meaningful manner. Uh, not to mention you were employing a lot of great artists. So I think that alone should be a, a great thing to herald. And, and creating those opportunities, let's say for actors, to play roles that are close to them. Exactly. Uh, to play roles that have a, a familiarity, a, a resonance that may not have been the case for those actors going through uh, an undergraduate theater program Absolutely. or, or you know, in, in some kind of training capacity. So we, we wanted to, you know, once again, we wanted to shift the subjectivity exactly. uh, and, and we want it to become the subject in, in these stories. Uh, and also to, to garner the power um, of other people seeing themselves, seeing their lives in our stories. Uh, I, I, I've told this, this particular story so many times about our very second production as a company, Valina Hasser Houston's play T, which is about, um, they were called war brides, Japanese war brides at, at the time, uh, women who married American servicemen after the Second World War during uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan, and, um, and were brought back to a, a small army-based town in Kansas. It's a beautiful play. It's a very, you know... Uh, deep and complex piece of theater. Uh, there was a German-American woman in the audience who identified herself to me. We later went on to become friends and she said, I'm fifth generation German-American. This is my story. Mm. Uh, this is my sister's story. This is my mother's story. Sure. And I, I was so affected by that, that sharing. Um, because I didn't expect it. Right. And she didn't expect it. Uh, she was curious, she was kind of intrigued, yeah. you know, the description was, uh, but all of a sudden it became part of a journey that she can relate to, that she identified. And I think that that humanization was not there before. I mean, that's one of the frustrations I think a lot of uh, minority groups in this country have felt is it was always one-dimensional representations. Uh, the good guy, the bad guy, the, you know, you name it. Now, finally, a complex three-dimensional character that doesn't only become identified by that one ethnic group, but rather by many people, because it's a human story ultimately. Even though it takes place in a, say, in a Japanese American setting, it's a very human story, and anyone can relate to that kind of a human story. And, and it's not exotic, and it's Precisely. not otherizing. It's not orientalized, it's, exactly. Right, or, or tourism literature, you know, let me hold your hand and take you to this place. Right. And, uh, uh, Reverend Philip Blackwell, who was the senior pastor at the Methodist Church that to this day hosts uh, Silk Road Rising, uh, often would tell the story of walking into the theater after a performance of Yusuf Al-Gindi's play, Ten Acrobats and an Amazing Leap of Faith, yeah. and the theater had emptied out except for one woman, a Muslim woman in hijab, who was, who was sitting there crying. And he says, you know, as a, as a good pastor, when I see someone crying, I go up and, you know, ask them if I can help. Um, and, and she said, I've never seen my life on stage before. 
I've never been, I've never had this experience. Uh, and, and she was so affected by it. Uh, and he said that that was his moment of, aha, this works. You know, this, this mission has legs. And, and isn't it shocking that it took until the 2000s for that to happen? I mean, prior to that time, you had non-Middle Eastern actors playing Middle Easterners, usually in brown face, in yellow face, doing things to their eyes, etc., to make themselves look like they were from Asia or the Middle East. It's so shocking to me that it took that long for somebody to actually see themselves on the stage, to see someone like them, looks like them, from their cultural background on stage sharing their story. It's, I think that is an extraordinary step forward. And what about the, the artists who, uh, you know, we all may have been sort of uh, toiling at, uh, at this work uh, prior to 9-11, but all of a sudden 9-11 presented a kind of, perhaps uninvited, exactly. uh, you know, uh, invitation to, to, to join the conversation, to join. Uh, who, who has stood out for you? I mean, what are the artists that, if how that's a fair time, question. How much time do we have? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no, I think it is a fair question, but yeah. let me say this. One of the terrible dichotomies in the post 9-11 era in American theater is that plays about Iraq, plays about Palestine, plays by, are usually on mainstream theaters, in mainstream uh, equity theaters, were usually not written by Middle Eastern Americans. Right, right. So, so on the one hand, you had an American audience that wanted the stories, but on the other, they weren't really willing to let the Middle Eastern American writers tell them, or the Middle Eastern writers tell them, they had to get others to do it for them. And I find that to be a, a really sad statement about how the American audiences negotiated what happened. They weren't listening, and here's a list of those writers you were asking about, you know, the Leila Bucks, Yusuf El-Gundi, Heather Raffo, um, uh, Fouad Taymour, um, Betty Shamiya. The list goes on and on. I mean, we have such incredibly talented writers writing from all of the diaspora from the Middle East. And now, of course, uh, South Asia, Asia as well, uh, East Asia. We, we've seen this amazing rise of talent. And these writers are as great of American playwrights as any have, that have existed Absolutely. prior to them. Absolutely. But yet they're still marginalized. They're still placed in the one ethnic slot that's usually available for the, the ethnic play of the season. Right. So you've got all of these different groups vying for one spot a season in most major equity theaters. That is, I, I cannot believe that's still occurring. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, and I love Shakespeare being a director. I love Shakespeare. But... Um, Shakespeare somehow became our American playwright. So we have Shakespeare festivals where we're putting in tens of millions of dollars to produce Shakespeare plays, um, but not enough into new American works. And I'm glad to see companies like Oregon Shakespeare Festival, for instance, yes. start to pivot and start to invite new voices to become part of their seasons. Uh, so, so I think that's a very positive model for how even Shakespeare companies can start to make that shift, bring the money, the resources that are necessary to start telling these stories as well. You know, as Silk Road grew and more people in the Chicago theater community and beyond became aware of the work we were doing, right. there was a tendency for people to tell playwrights, directors, actors of Silk Road backgrounds, which by the way is two-thirds of the world's population. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's two-thirds. Uh, oh, go to them. You know, they'll, they'll be interested in your work. They'll do your work. And we would always, you know, kind of 
turn that around and say, no, no, no. You know, part of our commitment, and I would say an important part of the commitment we've made, is that everyone be telling these stories, right. that these not be somehow siloed exactly. or somehow, you know, cordoned off. Uh, and, and today we are seeing many more theaters that might be described uh, as mainstream doing the work of, of Middle Eastern American and Asian American uh, playwrights. And, you know, we, we would really um, make a point of reminding people that if the, if the playwright is not from the community, it may not necessarily be a play you know, of, of the culture, of the community. Right. Uh, it is somehow perhaps a well-intentioned reflection. Precisely. Uh, or, you know, it may be an altogether different subjective lens. Um, and we're looking at how, uh, you know, Arabs or Middle Eastern people or Muslims somehow affect us. Uh, so I, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Um, but there are mechanisms in place. I mean, we are now working together as, as a community or communities of theater artists who want to change, uh, let's say, the canon, uh, which, you know, or, or you know, the fabric of, of American And that's going to take work on multiple levels. Uh, at the Academy, we've got to start introducing newer plays to the canon that are not just Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, etc. Uh, we need to be producing those plays at the college level so that we can in entice actors to come in and inhabit those roles. We need to have companies like Silk Road, Rising, Golden Thread, and others become not just um, companies that live in a space that has a, a place for these voices, but they need to become the mainstream theaters. You know? and, and the way that that happens is through investment of money, time, and effort by the American theater community. Not just giving a sort of side lip service, but rather giving the dollars and the attention that these companies deserve. I think all of that has to happen if we're ever going to change the discourse in a very tangible way. And, and I will say from the funding front or the philanthropic, uh, we still do occupy probably that third place. Right. Uh, and when a mainstream theater does work by uh, let's say minority artists, they are rewarded in a way that those of us who do that work 24-7, 365 days a year are not. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that causes a great deal of pain within our communities. You know, yeah. why, uh, one uh, artist told me recently, uh, I've been working with this playwright for 20 years and now the big theater in town produces their play and the big theater in town gets the credit for them. Like right. we discovered right. this playwright. But what about those 20 years of development that was done with the most meager of resources? Right. Almost with nothing, with artists working for free just to develop these plays and stage these plays. That is wrong and that is frustrating a lot of, I think a lot of uh, minority artists, if you will, hyphenated artists who feel that they're being snatched up by the large theaters uh, but not getting, not getting the credit that they deserved uh, in the development process. And that history so often getting erased. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it's a matter of, yes, not giving credit uh, but not even attempting to elevate, you know, those of us who, um, uh, who played such a crucial role. And, I, and I'm not saying that to pat us on the back or to be, right. you know, somehow self-congratulatory, but right. it, it does become a source of, of resentment for, for so many people in, 
in our communities when uh, when that recognition is not is not afforded exactly. to us. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that we are in what I oftentimes call a golden age, or maybe maybe we're, you know, the pre-golden age, or we are, we are approaching it. Sure. But, but something revolutionary is happening. I think there has been uh, a radical change. There has. Uh, and I think the fact that we're no longer willing to wait around uh, for our stories to be told or, or to be produced um, uh, is, is a significant shift. Yeah, I, th I think this generation of artists said we deserve a seat at the table yes. and, and, and prior artists never had that opportunity. So I think things are changing, but it's still very gradual. And a lot of our artists are really not able to make a full career uh, because right. there just aren't enough opportunities for them. And, and that's very hard. It's very hard to, to ask these artists to constantly be sacrificing uh, right. working day jobs and living, uh, you know, uh, paycheck to paycheck just to get these stories told. It's, very, it's a very hard uh, situation for them. And I, I wish that the American theater landscape would start accommodating these artists in a, more, in a much more robust way if, if this movement is ever to thrive. A heartfelt thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, for such inspiring conversation, and a big thanks to you, our listening audience, for joining us at In Dialogue. Bravo to Alex Gresh for recording and editing this episode, and to Andy Lynn for production managing our show. Over the next five episodes, we'll be continuing our exploration of the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements with Dr. Michael Malik Najjar. In our next episode, we'll be grappling with an important question. What is the difference between Arab American and Middle Eastern American? This podcast is a project of Silk Road Rising. As a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support of those who engage and enjoy our work. We hope that you will support our ongoing efforts and consider making a donation. To do so, please visit our website at www.silkroadrising.org. That's silkroadrising.org. Click on donate and thank you for your support. Until next time, keep helping the world heal.